This is episode number 69, The Pursuit of Less with Greg McEwen. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help give you the tools to be better every day. I've got to streamline this process so I can do more stuff. And essentialism is fundamentally different to that. It's saying it's not about doing more things, it's about doing more of the right things. So as we discover this putrid non-essentialism pool that we're swimming in and just just all the muck of non-essentialism, we start to go, oh my goodness, there's got to be a better way. Hi, I'm Sonia Looney, and this is my show. I'm so happy that you're here and so thankful that you've been listening week after week. If you're not familiar with me, I'm a professional mountain bike racer, and I take on the hardest mountain bike races around the world. And I've also won a world championship. I also am a speaker and a writer and an entrepreneur, and I love, love talking to people across multiple disciplines about the things that they've done and learned to optimize their life and also the things that they've done to share their message to help other people. I can't believe it's already September. The light is changing and that fall time of year, especially where I live in Kelowna, is amazing. The summer always seems to fly by, but that's probably because we're so busy during the summer, just going away every weekend and having tons of adventures and enjoying the outdoors. I just got back from the Toronto Veg Fest, which is the biggest Veg Fest in North America, with over 40,000 people coming through the doors in just three days. What's a Veg Fest? Well, I went to my first one last year and I actually spoke at it. It was the San Francisco Veg Fest. And it's basically a three day conference, or however long the Veg Fest is, some of them are one day, with a lot of different speakers from athletes to doctors to chefs giving and sharing information on plant-based nutrition and plant-based and vegan lifestyles. If you're interested in more about that side of things, make sure you check out some previous podcast episodes with a bunch of experts in the field. I have a lot of episodes. And also, you're welcome to join the Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. You don't have to eat plant-based. You don't have to be a vegan. You just have to be interested in healthy lifestyle. And that's what the group is about. So everybody is welcome to join. It's free. There's over 1,200 people in there who are posting. So come on over. Just go to Facebook and search Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. And you can also follow Plant Power Tribe on Instagram where it's more of fun tips and also more daily photos of the food that I'm eating. The group is more of a community page whereas the Instagram is more about me personally. So feel free to join either one and I'd be happy to see you there. So let's talk about today's guest, Greg McEwen. What does your closet look like? I know this sounds like a random question, but we talked about this a lot in the podcast. Is your closet meticulously organized or is there stuff everywhere? Have you tried to organize your closet? Well, Greg McEwen loves using this analogy to describe how we organize our priorities and tasks in our own mind. Is your mind a mess or is it organized? Is there a million different to-dos and are you always reacting to everything? Most of us go through life stretched out way too thin with all the inputs between work and email and social media and trying to have social lives. There never seems to be enough time in the day. We're bombarded with notifications, images of things we feel like we should be doing, and we take on way too much. Sound familiar? Well, it strikes a chord with me. Greg is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Essentialism. And I first heard him on Noah Kagan's podcast, and Noah did a great interview with him, and Noah himself has also been a guest on my show. Greg writes, teaches, and lectures around the world to help people choose what they should be prioritizing in life and how to develop the mindset of an essentialist. He has appeared on the Steve Harvey Show and has spoken at Apple, Google, Salesforce, Facebook, and more. What is an essentialist? Essentialists have the mindset of less but better over trying to be everything to everyone. Essentialists focus on only doing tasks that only relate to their highest contribution instead of constantly trying to do it all. 
How do we begin to say no to the seemingly infinite things we should be doing? How do we begin to eliminate the anxiety of not doing enough? How do we create free space to be creative and to play and reduce the feelings of being overwhelmed? In this podcast, you'll learn what the actual mindset of an essentialist is versus just going through the motions of trying to be more productive and put in even more things into your schedule. How to say no and the reality of trade-offs. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, I'd really appreciate a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It's really easy. Just go onto your phone and scroll down to the very, very bottom of my show page and click write a review. It really helps the searchability of this show. And my goal is to get to 200 reviews by the end of the year. So I'd really appreciate your help on that. And if you want to share it with your friends, take a screenshot, share it on social media and tag me. It's been really fun seeing all the different people who have been doing that lately and connecting with each one of you individually. So thank you again for that. So let's get into the show with Greg McEwen. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. It's so nice to be with you. It's so fun to actually get to put a face to this wonderful book I just read. Oh, that's kind of you. What did you like about the book? Well, I struggle with wanting to do everything and trying to do everything and then burning out really badly. So learning how to say no and learning how to select the things that actually matter. There's something in there about how to pick what's essential and how to pick the things that are really good, not just pretty good. So that's been really helpful for me. Why do you think you go through the process you just described? Why do you think you go for the, the sort of the burnout cycle? Well, I was going to ask you that because in your book, you have <laughs> stuff about type A personalities who just want to do everything and they try to do everything. And I wanted to ask you, why do we try to say yes to everything? And why do we feel that pressure to do everything? Uh, it's complicated, isn't it? Well, I don't know. There's two ways of thinking about this. I mean, I remember learning about this in my own life when I was, I got an email from my boss at the time, which said Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby between 1 and 2 p.m. because I need you to be at this client meeting. And Friday came along. We actually were in the hospital. Our, our daughter had been born the night before. And and we're there and everyone's well enough, but I felt pressured to go to the meeting. And, you know, to my shame, I went to the meeting. And afterwards, I remember they said to me, oh, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And maybe they did, although the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of confidence. But even if they did, I knew that I had made a fool's bargain. And, you know, from that experience, I, I learned the simplest idea myself, which is that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And so it set me off on a path to better understand what on the surface sounds quite simple, you know, but underneath it, why is it that otherwise successful people end up pursuing a strategy they don't mean to pursue? And I don't think I'm alone in that. Maybe I'm the only one who pulled a McEwen in quite the way I just described. But I think that other people you know, listening to this will contest it themselves by asking these questions. Have you ever felt like I was busy, but not necessarily productive? Have you ever felt uh, stretched too thin at work or at home or both? Have you ever felt like other people's agenda was hijacking your day? The, you know, if you're saying yes to any of those questions, then, then you're in the same place I was in. So the question is, is why? Why do we do this? And, you know, just offering just one thought about this, I just, I don't think it's because we most of the time deliberately choose this strategy. I don't think we say, I just want to do more than I can fit in. I'm going to just try and shove everything in all the time. I don't think it's as conscious as that. I think that we aren't really aware that there are two strategies and we're choosing one. I just think we're choosing one because it's such a dominant cultural norm of our time. And so we have to become conscious that this, however many people are choosing it, it is a strategy. And as soon as we start to discover that, we say, oh, there could be an alternative. 
would I really choose this if I was being given two options? And we can choose to take the other pill, so to speak, and suddenly see our lives clear more clearly, see what's really going on, and then we can choose an alternative. So I think that's what it's to do with. I think it's default. It's a default setting. I just have to do everything. I have to keep everyone happy all the time, and I have to try and fit it all in all the time. That's what everyone else is doing. That's the way. That's what life is. Turns out that it, there is an alternative. Yeah, and I think that just the way that we talk about ourselves and talk about our friends, if we're always championing being busy and accomplishing things over leading a life that has, I don't like really like using the word balance because that's the thing that I don't know if it's ever really achieved, but it's if you're striving for that, striving to make time to enjoy life instead of always be reacting to everything. But it's really hard with technology and with expectations, and it's having to redefine those expectations for yourself, which is really hard. Yes, I think that's right. You know, because the core problem is cultural and is collective. The solution ultimately will have to be collective as well. And that's one of the things that actually, frankly, I misunderstood to some degree or underestimated when I wrote Essentialism is that although individual behavior is, is still important, key, critical, we have the power to make choice, certain choices and we need to. So even though that has an immensely important role, I have come to believe that Essentialism is something that's ultimately done collectively or not at all. And so, so one of the first things I recommend to people, in fact, I'll say it this way, that the antidote to this problem we're talking about, non-essentialism, the antidote is to become an essentialist. But the worst way to become an essentialist is to try and do it on your own. So you need to get everybody in your world to become aware of non-essentialism to see what that's doing, to use that language, introduce this language. And of course, one way to do that is to get everybody, you know, to you know, the closest people to read essentialism together so that you are enabled to have a new conversation so that you can see, oh my goodness, look at what this is doing. Look at the cost of non-essentialism to individual life, to our ability to communicate, to the level of relationship that we're able to maintain, to the quality of our life, to the way that our team works. I mean, you can start to see the tremendous costs of a non-essentialism once you can have the conversation. But until then, until you can have that conversation, you're just going to keep on doing what you've been doing in the past. And so that's what I really think we have to do. We have to allow the language of non-essentialism and essentialism being a non-essentialist and being an essentialist. And then there's other key questions that are in the book that we can start asking and discussing together. This is really what we need to do next. Does that make sense? I think the hardest part is defining what that priority and what the essential things are in your life and then putting boundaries around those. But it's really hard to actually define what that is in a really clear way. It's, um, first of all, you're absolutely right. But I want to add to it the, this observation, which is that it's the work of life. So sometimes when we think about prioritization or setting goals, if we think about this maybe as something you do at the beginning of the year, set your goals uh, for you know, New Year's resolutions, kind of an idea, or that just very occasionally you stop to think about the big picture, you go to some training session on it. That's not the right way to think about this. That's like a peripheral thing. Well, you know, sometimes I really ought to think about the big, you know, the prioritization. No, the work of life is, essentialism is the real work of life. Figuring out what is essential, eliminating what's not, and building a system to make execution as effortless as possible. Those are the three practices of essentialism. I'll say them again, to create space, to explore what's essential, two, to as gracefully as possible as collectively as possible to eliminate what's not, and then to build a system that makes it as easy as possible to then maintain those things that you've identified as being very important. So that's a cycle, and you've got to keep doing it because that's it. That's what, when we talk about self leadership, I think there's nothing beyond what we just described. When I think about 
organizational team leadership, there's nothing beyond what I just described. If I'm talking about what it takes to build a great relationship, there's nothing beyond those three practices. That doesn't mean there aren't other things to understand in life, of course, but really at the core, the jugular of all other activity is these questions. What's essential? (laughs) What's not so we can stop doing it? And how do we build a system that maintains those things? And you'll find that you know, the great relationships have achieved, will, to a higher degree, have achieved clarity around what matters and are not doing what doesn't matter and have routines in place to support what matters. I mean, great teams do the same, great performance in individuals. I mean, it's the same process. And so it's uh, not one more thing. It's the very work of life. So if someone's listening to this and is thinking, yeah, that sounds really good. I want to do that. Besides buying your book and reading it, which they definitely should do, how can an individual, what steps can an individual take to define what is essential for them in their relationships and in their work life? I will get to the practical things that they can do, but I want to introduce a metaphor because, you know, it's a way to kind of concretely see what's going wrong and then how to fix it. And you just think about what happens in our closets. If our closet if we don't have a system in place for organizing our closet, well, what happens to it? Um, okay, like so, <laughs> right. Well, what what does yours look like? Tell me what yours well, looks like. I actually just fixed it, but basically stuff, okay. stuff gets... What did it look like before? Well, there was like stuff everywhere. Stuff was disorganized. There wasn't a spot for everything. And I noticed in your book, you mentioned Marie Kondo's life-changing magic of tidying up. And that is what helped me organize my closet. But having an actual space for everything is super important. Yeah, so Marie Kondo's totally got it right, of course. But I still want to just go back for just one second back to what was going wrong before. So you described it as loads everywhere and so on. There's things on the floor, yes? Yeah, there's no system or place for everything to go. So instead of putting it away in its space, it would take too long to try and figure that out. You just throw it on the floor because it's quicker. Okay, so stuff's being thrown on the floor. When you go and get stuff in the morning, what would you do? How would you go about that in the morning? Well, you might just pick something up off the floor and put it on. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> no, I do want you to be honest. That's great. So, so because you're not alone at all. Okay, so you go in there. Okay, what am I going to Oh, I need that one thing over there. And you grab it. Okay, so now this is your system. The system is stuff just kind of gets thrown in there. And when you need something, you kind of try and drag it out. And that is a great description for what I think current, the non-essentialist system of decision-making is. Non-essentialism isn't a sophisticated system. Non-essentialism is reactive in nature. It's just whatever's happening, we start to get a bit behind. And so there's so many inputs coming in. Some of it is email, text, it's those kinds of inputs. But then, of course, there's other default settings where we've got social media updates coming in. So it isn't even really any information for us isn't curated for us really it isn't necessary for us to know but that's the default setting on the phone and everything things are just coming in Uh, we've got news updates from whatever the news outlets of choice that we have those are breaking news everything's breaking news and that's acting upon us so this is the current situation non-essentialism is just us reacting to those things i can my job is fit this all into the closet of my life. Shove it all in. Throw it on the floor if necessary. Just cram it all in. Okay, now you said you read Marie Kondo's book. So is that why you then decided to organize your closet? Was there a sort of like, I mean, how did it come to, how did it come to change for you? Well, I wanted to be more organized and I wanted to have a system. And I also wanted to know how to get rid of stuff and know what stuff is essential to keep in my house and what stuff isn't. And the spark joy method was really helpful for that. Did you read the book in reaction or did you, someone give you the book and then you go, okay, I'm now feel motivated. I'm going to go do this. I read the book first. Amazingly. Cause someone said, this is a good book. Check this out. It wasn't right. like, Oh, like, because in, yes. her, in her book, she talks about how everyone tries to organize all the time and it's just a failure because they don't have a system. Exactly. So, and I love that you came to it that way because what I think in some ways happened is that she, even though you knew, hey, my closet isn't really probably how I want it, it's not especially conscious for you because this has just become normal. 
this is just how it is. And that's, again, is what's happening with non-essentialism. People just are normalized to what I think is weird. Non-essentialism is weird. Seriously. The more you face it, the more you wake up to it, the more absurd it is, right? Actually, throwing the clothes on your floor and picking them up in the morning when you're looking for something, once you've sort of seen the light through Marie Kondo's eyes, you say, that's a pretty weird way to go. I was doing it like that. Why was I doing it like that? There's got to be there's a better way than doing it that way. But non-essentialism is weirder than trying to pick clothes off the floor in the morning. Look at what people do in the name of non-essentialism. Look at them walking down the street with a phone you know, on walking into things, people walking into the street, people dying from this stuff. Look at people. I remember one time I was um, I'm embarrassed about it, but I was I was busy. I had a laptop open while I was driving. You know, I mean, what what am I doing? That's just that's weird. What are you what am I thinking driving down this busy road? I mean, thank goodness nothing terrible happened that day. But that's the weirdness of non-essentialism. So. What we have to do is wake up to that. It's it really is, and and even though people want to quick jump to like, okay, what can I do about it? I think waking up to it is is a bigger, more important thing, so that you can start to naturally take, almost spontaneously take the next steps. So what I'm always cautious of with people is to say, here are some practices to become an essentialist, but they maintain their non-essentialist core. The mindset doesn't change. If you believe that life is about shoving more stuff in and your job is to get it all done, and if you can get it all done, then you'll be successful. If you believe that, then you're going to any efficient, any book you read, including essentialism at some level, will be read as just increased efficiency. Uh, okay, I've got to streamline this process so I can do more stuff. And essentialism is fundamentally different to that. It's saying it's not about doing more things. It's about doing more of the right things. So as we discover this putrid non-essentialism pool that we're swimming in and just just all the muck of non-essentialism, we start to go, oh, my goodness, there's got to be a better way. We want to wash ourselves off. We want to clean all this and see a different way. Suddenly we say, I mean, it starts to become spontaneous. Of course, of course, I'm not going to. I mean, I, I did a, a video, a, a TV segment on the Steve Harvey show where the person I worked with, I went to their house and she told me that we went into her whole house, into the, each of the rooms. And when we were in her bedroom, she said, um, I said, okay, where do you put your phone in here? I said, oh, I just keep it under my pillow. On, under her pillow. Why? So that I can answer people when they text me all through the night this would be a great reality tv show just in general like to take a bunch of people and just have other people watch i think it's weird enough now that it does make quite interesting viewing and and hopefully from your mouth to god's ears hopefully we'll we'll see a great show built on this at some point you know under her pillow at night she wakes up to answer and then tries to go back to sleep that is her night that's weird that's not productive that's weird. Why is she doing that? Because she's bought into a whole to, to this this idea that I have to get on top of life, meaning I have to respond to everything all the time. That's what success looks like. And in fact, the busyness itself is success. That it's not just that it leads to success, but the being busy is a measure of your importance. Oh, we're if totally you believe addicted to it, totally addicted to it. So if you're addicted and you really believe that being busy is importance, that being busy means you're important, then you're going to be more busy. You're going to keep adding on to business. You're going to be proud of how many emails you get. You're going to be proud of how many updates come in. This is going to be your mechanism of life. And so you've got to shine a light on that first, on that mindset, so that you can shift the mindset. What's the new mindset? The mindset is almost everything is non-essential. Only a few things are essential. And as soon as you believe that, you suddenly spontaneously start to shift towards searching for what those few essential things are. You will take time to think about it. You, you say, okay, I don't know what's essential, but a few things. It's like, 
I wake up. I'm not in a coal mine. I thought my whole life I've been in a coal mine. My job is just to be busy, get as much of this stuff out of here. No, I'm in a diamond mine. My job is finding diamonds carefully, thoughtfully, reflecting, trying to work out what's really essential. Non-essentialists believe almost everything's non-essential. Excuse me, it's the opposite way around. Non-essentialists, non-essentialists think almost everything's essential. Essentialists think almost everything is non-essential. And so the key is to get that shift in mindset. My job is to find those few things that really matter most. Once you do, let's go back to the metaphor for a moment. Marie Kondo, which say, take everything out of the closet. Everything out. So you've got all of it together. Then pick up every item one by one. Now she's using uh, what we normally would use when we're packing a closet, evaluating a closet. You pick an item up and you look at it and you say, could I ever possibly wear this again in the future? Maybe. <laughs> and the answer to that question is yes, you could possibly maybe use this in the future. That's a very broad criteria. So what's a more selective criteria? You could ask, do I, do I wear this often? Do I, do I have, have I worn it in the last six months? Marie Kondo's question is, is a classic essentialist question. Her whole thing is built upon the one question you already mentioned. Does it spark joy? Yeah, almost nothing sparks joy. But the whole reason it's a terrific question is that far, yeah, even things we wear sometimes, even if we wear them often, they don't spark joy with this. Yeah, they're, they're not bad. And I, you know, it's, it's my favorite pair of jeans. So it's, well, then you look at them and you go, actually, they don't spark joy. They're just better than all the other ones I've got hanging in there. Does it spark joy? If you ask that of every item in your closet, as you're putting the item back in, you find that very few items go back in. And similarly in our life, what we have to do, and I recommend people do this every day, is you just get everything out of your head, like out of the closet of your mind. Write it all down. This is what's going on. This is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'd like to get done today. And the list is long. Then of every item, you pick it up and you say, how important is this? Is it very important? Is it averagely important? Is it complete waste of my time, really? And to try and identify, in terms of getting things out of the closet, one thing is to, as I said, is to list it all out just the, the download. And then the second thing I think people can do and need to do is to do like, you know, write down everything they have done yesterday. Just a full, and you know, just every half hour, what did they do? You might have to actually write that down through the day to be able to have a good recollection of it. So you're being very honest about it. You know, okay, it was on social media from this time to this time, whatever, right? Whatever you were actually doing, you write it all down. So that you can then can get to evaluate each item against a really selective question. Not necessarily does it spark joy, although it's not the worst question, but just asking, is, was that essential? Was that very important? Or was it something else? Was it very important? And so in this way, we start to learn to distinguish between the vital few things and the trivial many. And um, this is why the metaphor of the closet is so helpful. You know, as you, anything that's not essential, anything that's not, let's say, 90% or above important, becomes a candidate for elimination. You don't have to say no to it just because it's 80% important, but at least it becomes a candidate for it because you want to try and get rid of the things that are less important. So the space to do the things that are most important, space to figure out what's most important tomorrow and so on. And then the third thing, as you're sort of starting to, you know, you're eliminating these things, slowly eliminating the things that we've identified as being less important, is to build a system for doing it. So back to the closet again, you say, well, it's not enough to do it once. So you just went through your closet. Yes, it's all organized now, but what's the system? What's the routine for doing that? If you don't have a system, if you don't have a daily routine, for example, eventually your closet will return to its original system because you your original state because you will buy new clothes and you will you know run out of hangers or you and the system won't work anymore i remember my best friend growing up sam his closet was always meticulous just always organized his desk always organized 
brilliant, amazing. Never, I didn't understand how he did it. I'd go home, I'd go stay at his house, and then I'd go to my house, and I'd be like, right, okay. I want my, I mean, it was back to the cassettes. I want my cassettes to be organized like his. They were so great. I would spend hours and hours trying to make them as organized. I couldn't do it. And so I asked him about it one time, and he just said, he said, you know, I don't spend much time at all organizing my things, which is more irritating even than, than <laughs> saying spend hours on it, isn't it, really? But he says, I just do it every day. So he had a daily system. So when he was finished doing whatever homework he was on, or even if he wasn't finished, he'd put it all away every time. And so the system was that he would he would do it routinely. He had a habit. He had a routine. And so at any one time, this thing was organized. Whereas in, for me, I might finish that. Uh, I'm not quite finished with that homework. I'll leave it out. And there it is. We were already on our way. Take some pens out to do something to leave the pens out. And, and this is how it goes. So similarly in our lives, we need a daily system. I mean, I think it's a day. I don't want to overwhelm people, but I think it's daily. I think it's weekly. I think it's monthly. But let's let's just deal with the daily for a second. So we've talked about getting it all out, get all the stuff out. We've talked about evaluating the list. But I haven't talked about how extreme we have to go. We have to get to the point that we have the priority. And that's hard. I, I tell you, I struggle with that still, that requirement. But that's that's what we're going for. We're saying if I only get one thing done today, what is it? The priority. Some days you just won't. You, you know, you pull, you get pulled back into just non-essentialism. You'd be reactive. And that doesn't mean you're not going to get good things done. It doesn't mean you beat yourself up about it. But you still come back the next day. In fact, sometimes I've had days where I feel very distracted or just not even reactive. And I'm doing fairly good things, but I don't really know what the priority is. And I, and I suddenly remember, all right, are you just going to spend the whole day like this? Or are you going to pause now? And it'll be the afternoon. And I'll say, okay, what's the priority now for the rest of the day? And I feel like that's a very encouraging thing to remember that however distracted you've been today, in the next moment, you can focus on what's most important. You can pause at any moment and say, okay, I've been reactive. I've been feeling a bit crazy. I felt like I was in motion sickness rather than momentum today. I'm going to pause. I'm going to stop. And now I'm going to evaluate my day and come up with what is the highest priority. And I think that daily practice is very, very important. I'll take a sheet of paper. One of the ways I like to do this is I'll take a sheet of paper and I'm looking for the top six things I'm going to do in priority order. But I, I like to do it on the page so that it's graphically representing how important the item is to me. So the first item is like, so you cut the paper, you don't cut it, but you kind of use a pen to make the page in half. Number one is full 50% of the page. That's my mission for the day. That's the priority. The second item takes up a quarter of the page. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not describing it that well, but that's a quarter of the page. So I'm going down the page. The third item will take up, I think I've got the right, math right, an eighth of the page and so on. And I'm just looking for the top six items. And it helps me for the rest of the day to recognize the top item is worth more than the second item. And that's one of the problems with to-do lists is that we start to feel like they're all equally important tasks and they're not. <laughs> the most important task might be, you know, 50% of the value of your day is getting that task done. And so I like that there's a visual representation of that. And six for me is a magic number two, because I feel like if I can do three important things in my personal life and three important things in my professional life each day, that's a great day. Whereas if I get 15 things and they're all not really very important, I don't know. It's, a, it, it's, not, it's not the same satisfaction. There we, yeah, there I wanted go. to ask you if people are at work. So, because in, in your book, I love this section about work specifically because people will do things to get the attention of their boss or their manager. So instead of going for their highest contribution, they'll just try and be better than somebody else or they'll just trying to do it so that they look good instead of actually trying to achieve or produce something that's meaningful. So I want to talk about that. And then number two, I want to talk about how do you tell your boss no when your boss is saying, I want you to do this and you're already completely overloaded and you're worried you're going to get fired if you say no, like the woman checking her phone underneath the pillow. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I wouldn't start applying essentialism by just saying no to your boss. 
that seems like a potentially career limiting approach. And sometimes, sometimes I do write about saying no, and I talk about saying no gracefully in the book. But sometimes that that very idea is so emotional for people that it almost is like a gravitational pull for them, and then it almost becomes like they think that essentialism means saying no, because it's so new and difficult and emotionally charged. And then I I have to point out that I didn't write a book called Noism. You know, I wrote a book called Essentialism, and that makes all the difference. The key is not just to say no, it's to say, okay, what's essential? So I remember talking to my farm manager one time, and they were asking me to take on another project. And I was already doing, I think, four for them at the time. And and so here was the fifth one. And I my response wasn't, no, I'm not going to do that. It was, can we just talk about this for a second? I have these four different projects, these initiatives. I think they're all interesting. I think I can do a sort of maybe a good job in all of them. If I do this fifth one, maybe I can do an averagely, you know, maybe average to good job in all five of these initiatives. Or I could take on one and do it really superbly well and really focus on that. And I'm just curious which you would prefer me to do. And can we, you know, talk about that? And the conversation didn't last much longer than that. In fact, he said, uh, he said, well, listen, let me just uh, let me have a think about that. That's a reasonable question. Came back later. He said, actually, there is one that's definitely most important to me. And so that's let's have you focus on that. And for the next year, I focused on that initiative. And we had breakthrough results as a result of that trade-off. And so I think that that's what you're trying to do in situations where you don't have control, you know, where you're only in an influencing position is to raise the subject, is to make non-essentialism visible, is to make trade-offs visible so that we can talk about it. This is why, precisely why, you want to get your boss, your team members, the key customers in your in your world to be reading essentialism, to be learning about it together, so that when you have the conversation, it doesn't sound like you're just being insubordinate. There's a logic to why you're doing it. And where, where I see people make the biggest mistakes with essentialism is where they read it on their own. They're convicted. They're convinced. My goodness, I'm a non-essentialist. They're probably right about that. And then they just try to be an essentialist on their own. And people don't even know what's happened to them. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what I've now described this as is it's so countercultural. It's almost like essentialism and essentialists are speaking a different language than non-essentialists. And so just as if we were having a conversation today in English and in Spanish, oh, that would be very tricky. You know, we're not going to understand each other, obviously. And that's what happens with essentialists and non-essentialists. So you've got to learn the language together so that you can have the conversation. And that's really what I would advocate is as people are on the same page with the language, then they can have the conversation. Now, that's not easy. You, it's not an easy conversation. Prioritization is not an easy conversation because ultimately you are ascribing value to one thing over something else. You're saying that is more important than this thing. And it's especially not easy if the final conclusion is, therefore, we're not going to do item eight, nine, and 10. That's hard. Eight, nine, and 10 might be things that actually you want. Getting rid of the items in your closet that don't spark joy is not necessarily easy. Just because it doesn't spark joy doesn't necessarily mean you're going, oh, great, let's just pass that away. You know, my mother gave that to me, a special memory we had together. I hate it, actually. I never really wanted it. I've never worn it, but I've still got this feeling of connection to it. Getting rid of things is actually quite hard. It requires new skills. But you can't get to the elimination if you can't have the conversation about what's essential, well, that's the place to begin. Uh, creating space, creating safety to have the conversation about what matters. Uh, there we go. That's what I think. Yeah. And I also think that if you start becoming more successful, whether you work for someone else or you're an entrepreneur, success breeds more opportunities. And often it breeds good opportunities that come up. And it's really hard because you want to advance in your career to say no to some of those opportunities because you think, well, if I do this, then I could have this happen. So knowing when to say no to those is really hard. Well, it's that's just so. And it's a little bit like, again, back to the closet metaphor. It's a little bit like somebody, you know, 
when they're younger, maybe they didn't have uh, very much money, they're in college, and so they're buying clothes of a certain kind, so they can say no to certain things because oh, it's out of my budget. And, and then now they've, a few years later, they've got a well-paying job, they can buy anything they want to buy, let's say, anything at the mall. Well, if they have the same criteria they had at college, they're going to have way too many clothes. Because the item they would have loved to have before, they can have any of those clothes now. And so you have to keep increasing your selectivity as your success in life continues. And the moment you plateau in your selectivity, you will plateau in your success. That's a very important causal relationship there because the key to being a key to being able to continue to break through to the next level of success is to increase your level of selectivity and to do it before you have to. So with the closet, it's saying, I'm going to leave space in here for something great. I'm going to go to the mall. I'm not going to buy anything I see or anything that I like. I'm going to wait until I find exactly what I'm looking for. And that will then spark joy. And I'll put that on the into my carefully curated closet. Great. In life, it's similar. You've got to create space so that you can even explore what the next big thing is. If you're constantly reacting, even to really good opportunities, you will miss the opportunity to break through to the next level. And so essentialism, the three steps we've been talking about, exploring, eliminating, and executing, aren't just stress management practices. They're not just a life's kind of out of control, what to do about it. It's a absolutely key process for how you can break through to the highest level of contribution that you can make. And so you say no to something so that you have the resources, the space, the creativity, uh, the time to figure out what is really breakthrough for you. Uh, a way that happened for me was that, you know, fairly recently was that I'd started working on the next book. I'm in very early stages of working on the next book at the time, but, but still I'd begun the process and you know, my agent's on board with this, publisher's on board with this. I'm on board with it. I want to do it. But I have the feeling this is not the right time. This is, this might be the right thing, might be, but it's not the right time. And you've just got to, you've got to pause on this. And that was a very hard decision for me because well, I'm a writer. I like to write. I wanted to write. And by the way, the, the incentives are there to write the next book. The, the publisher wants it. It's e actually, it's easier. It's easier the second time around. Of course it is. The first book was more successful, continues to be more successful than any of us expected it to be. So does everything's aligned to do it. But if I just said yes to that, I'd have been so consumed with doing that, I wouldn't have been able to see the next big opportunity, which I've been able to pursue instead. I mean, the, it's very early days with the, other, the new opportunity too, but for me, it was to do something in television, which is why it was funny you mentioned that before. And it was within days of the decision not to write the next book that Steve Harvey read Essentialism and blogged about it, said, this book changed my life. And because I had the space, the mental space, to be thinking about the real 10x opportunity, and also because of that clarity that came because of that space, I was able to reach out to his team, and suddenly this relationship begins. And I remember a few months afterwards, we did multiple appearances on the show, and suddenly this idea of a television show has gone from being totally impossible to, wow, this is the path. We're on this path, and it's a multi-year journey for sure, but we're really like on this path now. And we wouldn't have been if I just said yes to the opportunity that I was in. That's why essentialism is harder over time because it helps you to go higher and higher in your contribution over time. But it's so much more valuable the more you live it over time. You're no longer saying no to the, to the dross, to the junk. You're saying no to good things. But as a result, you are able to say yes to great things, breakthrough things that can make a tremendous difference over time. But how do you deal with the mental anxiety and the fear and the guilt? Because you could say, I know I'm doing the right thing. I know that this is going to create more opportunities for me. But you could still have those feelings of, well, what if I'm wrong? Or look at all the things everybody else is doing. Like, how do you manage that? Yeah, the fear of missing out is so real, isn't it? I mean... 
uh, FOMO is a is a I mean, that's right you know FOMO and and FOMO is a is a real thing for people and especially with social especially with social media right that's just FOMO on steroids that you get to see it's not even the best of other people's lives although that's right you know the most glamorous picture the you know that I mean, it's not quite lying, but it's almost like people just lie on social media because there's so much pretense in which photo to share. You know, you're sharing the photo of the moment on your holiday that was most peaceful, glamorous, gorgeous view, everything. And that's the moment you're sharing. You're not sharing the flight when you're all going crazy. It's exhausting and you're bleary eyed and, and all of it. So there's, we're seeing the carefully edited, photoshopped, so to speak, version of other people's lives. And then we feel like, well, I'm supposed to do what they're doing. And we're supposed to do what everybody that we're seeing is doing. None of that's a very natural state of living, and none of it's good for our mental health. I think what we have to learn is the joy of missing out, uh, or JOMO. There is joy in missing out. Actually, it's funny because I mentioned Sam already in this conversation, but Sam has always been and still is better at me than this. You know, people will say, oh, yes, we're off to do this amazing thing. And his response, he'll say, oh, yeah, that sounds exhausting. Interesting, but that sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> that's what people and say about my life all the time. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that's interesting, right? And ex- examining, you know, we don't have to eat. Yeah, well, what do you make of that? I mean, that's interesting. They say that about you all the time, but you still, do you take pride in that? Do you take pride in them saying, oh, your life is exhausting. How do you yeah, do it all? I, I, of course I do, <laughs> which is not healthy. Yeah. You must be familiar with all your training with the idea of an upper bound and lower bound. Are you familiar with that terminology? Mm-hmm. So that you, when you're setting goals, you don't just set lowest level. Like that would be the way we'd normally set goals. We'd say, okay, I want to work out every day this week. That would be a lower level goal. We're saying that's my minimum level. I want to go out three times a week or whatever the goal is, that's a lower level. But I come to believe that we also need a higher level limit with an upper bound. Most high performing people understand the, the idea of, of a lower bound goal because that's what's driving them forward. I want to perform this well. I want to do these things. But they don't have an upper bound. So as a result, they have these Lurch efforts. Okay, I'm going to do really, really well. Oh, and then I got to like crash for a while. And I'm going to go really, really well, and then I'm going to crash. And it's like the, the, it's the, it's the burnout cycle that we started talking about at the very beginning. One solution is to have an upper bound goal where you say, I'm not going to do any more than this. So I'll give you a, a non exercise example in my own life, right? So I keep a journal every single day. I never, ever miss a day in my journal for the last seven and a half years. How to get there. You know, so for me, I was highly motivated to do it, but I'd done this many times, the burnout model. Start, first day, I'm going to write a journal, three, four pages. Day two, I don't have an hour. Can't spend that time. Oh, I'll get to it tomorrow. Day day three, you've got two days to make up now. Yeah, you've got two hours to make up, never going to do it. So then you're burned out before you barely began. So that's the problem with just having lower bound goals that you say, I'm going to write every day. The problem is, is that is that you do too much day one and you can't sustain it. So the goal became don't write any more than five lines. You have to do it every day, but never more than five lines. And that upper bound meant that it kept me consistent. So that on the days that I feel like writing loads, I don't write loads. And then on the days that I feel like oh, I'm just too tired. You go, no, you know what the lower is and you only have to do five lines so you can make it happen until it became a deep habit Till I built systems and routines that included bringing my journal. Most places I go, I physically have it with me within arm's distance. So it's always there when I have a minute. So I'm waiting for somebody, something's late. I can just pull it out. I'm at a restaurant waiting for somebody late. I can pull it out and start writing. So the, the, the system's there to then support it. Now I never miss. I wonder if there's not a similar rule for you in your life where you can establish some rules for yourself that build up a bound rules and that the justification for doing it is not, ah, you're so weak. If you were stronger, you could just do all of this. The reason is I want to win for the long run. I want to win consistently. 
I want to have sustainable superior results. That's the justification for the upper bound, lower bound idea. What do you think when I'm sharing all of that? I think that's helpful. And I think that something that I'm going to tie in with that that's been helpful for me is thinking about your brain as a muscle. And I've had some guests on talking about mental fatigue and how just because you feel like you can do everything and you have the energy to do everything for a long period of time doesn't mean that you should. Similarly to like cycling, of course I can go out, I can ride my bike eight hours a day every day, but that's not going to make me faster. You need to rest. And it's that periodization thing. So periodizing your mental muscle and then having that limit, I think would be really helpful to tie the two together. I just read an article just yesterday, the day before called, um, the four hour workday. And in it, he identified some research that had been done about the top performing professors at, at, at a university. And they found that, so the lowest performers worked almost not at all, which makes sense, right? Like these are professors, they hardly come in, they hardly do anything and so on. They got their tenure, they're good. <laughs> they got their tenure, they're good and they're out basically, right? So they're not publishing and productivity as defined by you know numbers of papers published, I think is how they were doing it. Then the more hours they put in, the productivity goes up. It peaks at about four-ish hours a day. Once they were working more than four hours a day on concentrated work, their productivity starts to go down. And then it doesn't die. It actually does come back a little bit at the end. So it's a little bit M-shaped. So it means that if somebody's working like all the time there is, their productivity will start to come up, but not to the peak. It's not like a full correct M. It will just come up higher than the lowest levels. So it means that fundamentally, we that, that these professors at some level are conned into believing that if they're working the highest number of hours, this is the best way to productivity. And I think it's that was very comforting to me as somebody who cares about top performance, cares about breaking through to the next level, is actually it feels very true to me that if I spend a few hours, half a day at most, in proper creative work on the for me, it's on it's on writing. For me, it's on certain type of, of work. It's teaching and writing, basically those two things. Whatever the whether it's a keynote at a conference or whether it's something on television, it's still the same idea: teaching and writing. I can only do a few hours of that, and post after that, it's got not just diminishing returns. My overall productivity will go down. It's not just that each incremental hour is less valuable; it's that my overall ability to contribute is reduced. And so I feel like looking at the science of this for you in the work that you're doing would, would also be helpful and for everybody listening. It's what is the work that we want to give ourselves to and how, and then we simplify it. We, how can I do this in just a few hours? Because that's the way to be at peak performance. It's rethinking peak performance. Actually, it's not even rethinking it. It's just trusting the actual research in peak performance, because most of what people believe about peak performance is not justified by what the research actually shows. So we believe because we've been raised in non-essentialism land that to sleep, you know, four hours a night is the way to achieve peak performance. That's the way to break through to the next level. And there's no research to support that <laughs> at all. <It's> <laughs> None. Right. Opposite, right? It's the opposite as you as you rightly say. And similarly for the number of hours worked on the work that is important to us. It's the same idea. You know that because of your research, but how to apply the same idea now to say, okay, I'm going to work four hours. Ch challenge you to do it. Have a four-hour work day. <laughs> so, so that, the, yeah, see, your laugh. What did the laugh mean to you? Well, actually, the laugh means that it would, it's like, it makes you nervous. But right. as I mentioned, my parents are in town right now. So I allow right. myself two hours of work per day while they're here because I want to spend time with them. Because in previous years... I've said, well, I have to work. I don't care that you're here. I'm working. And then I realized, well, how many actual times are you going to see your parents again? Like I reverse engineered this. How old are your parents? How long, like, how long are they probably going to live? How many times do you normally see them? And then I said, well, I'm only going to see my parents maybe this many more times. Is that worth the trade-off of getting work done? No. So I've reduced it to two hours a day. And because of that, I am way more efficient in those priorities that we just talked about. What are the most important things? And those right. get done in those two hours. 
So two thoughts on this. One is, have you read the article, the graphic, it's a graphical essay called The Tail End? Mm-mm. Are you familiar with that? Okay, so you have to see that. People listening have to have to go read that right the now. The Tail End. The Tail End. The Tail End is a graphical representation of the amount of time we have left. It's a truly essentialist kind of piece. As he says, okay, visualizing how many months do I have left? Graphically representing how many weeks, how many days. And then he gets the kicker piece is what, what made me think about it from this. He says, how many days or hours, I can't remember now, but do I have left FaceTime with my parents? And he realized that when he left his house, when he left the, you know, his home growing up, he already had used up, I think his number was 93% of his FaceTime with his parents. And he could hardly believe that. And that's why it's called the tail end. He says, we're all in the tail end. We just don't realize it. We're conned into thinking we have more time left than we do. And that's exactly right. It's like discovering that our closet is a third of the size that we think it is. It's like, oh my goodness, I somehow, for some reason, I thought this was bigger than it really is. I got no room here. And that's life is that we have far less room left than we think. That's why we have to become so selective is because we only have just enough time to do the things that are important, essential. So that's the first thing. The second is that I had somebody reach out to me a while ago who has a condition. I can't remember the name of it now, but the condition means that she has incredibly low energy, a very limited supply of energy. And, she, it, and it's, it's, it's like nothing's going to change this. It's not, about, it's not about, oh, she needs to eat better or sleep better than all of those things. It's just the condition that she has means that she only has so much productive time. She has about two hours a day, the time that she can work on things. And so when she was talking to her counselor about this, they recommended essentialism to her because they're like, this might be an alternative way to think about your life instead of all the fear of missing out, the frustration that you feel because you can't do everything that you see everyone doing. Maybe it's, there's something in this. And so she just realized, it, and she's able to do amazing things now because she goes, I can't do everything everyone else does. So I'm not going to choose a different strategy. And it's so genius, right? Because actually it's such a gift. What she's been given is a real gift because now she has to think what really matters. If I can only make a contribution in two hours a day, what will it be? And that thought process is so productive that she's now, I think she's as productive as anybody. She's working on a book right now that, uh, that I think can make a great contribution to people. She's doing, she's doing really interesting, good work, but because she's being so selective and thoughtful anyway. And it forces you to say no to, because if you only have two hours and everyone's demanding your time for all these different things, and you only have two hours, then you have to say no to almost everything. So that might be a fun exercise for people to to try is say, okay, like I only get two hours today. What am I saying no to? And if you're saying no to those things, remember that whenever you have eight hours or however many hours you're allocating is what you were saying no to during those two hours. Yes, and, and allowing for the other hours of our life to be more playful. My family and I have four children. And uh, we, we went to Christopher Robin, the Disney movie that's come out about Winnie Pooh and all of this. And I was actually very touched by that film. I, I wasn't, I hadn't especially been looking forward to it. It's fine. I'd do it for the family. This is fine. But there's some really great insights in that film about the pain of non essentialism. I mean, it's literally, it's a metaphor for non essentialism versus essentialism. The whole movie is that. And the pain that he discovers because he is keeps on believing he has to say no to his family. He has to say no to play. He has to say no to playfulness and to joy and happiness. I mean, he, he gets rid of all of that, really. And it's suffocated. And then he discovers that there, there is a way back. At one point, he says, it's the most touching moment for me in the movie. He's, I mean, it sounds ridiculous in a way for those who haven't seen the film. But he's talking to Winnie the Pooh and he says, I am lost. I'm lost. And when he says, uh, and Pooh says, but I found you. And it's a very touching little moment. And it's the idea, I mean, of course, Winnie the Pooh is based upon Taoism and deep Eastern philosophies. It's not, it was written in a very, you know, childlike way for a Western audience, but really he's manifesting constantly this alternative way of living that you can be focused in the present, that you can be more playful in your way of living and to not spend all of our life in this endless, undisciplined pursuit of more. 
love it. That's a really great place to wrap it up. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks. That was awesome, but the hard part is actually putting this into practice. As Greg mentioned, it's easy to read these books, to learn all these systems, to say, yeah, I'm just going to start saying no to more, but you have to actually develop the mindset of an essentialist, the mindset of, I don't actually have to do it all. I don't actually have to say yes to all of these things. I'm not less than if I'm not doing everything. And I think that that is the life's work. That's something that I'm working on. And it's not very easy to change that. There's deep seated self-worth and deep seated expectations that we have of ourselves and that others have of us and learning how to shift those to have a more calm and productive life is really hard. So I'm really thankful that Greg came on the show. And it's something that I really am trying to work on. And hopefully this was helpful to you guys as well. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate you being here. We can't wait to see you next week. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. See ya.